0: earlier on the show about Pat Fitzgerald, the former head coach of the Northwestern University football team, being fired. We talked about the legalities. But now I want to talk a little bit more about hazing in general. Why is it that even though there are codes of conduct in schools prohibiting hazing and there are laws making it a crime to haze, we are still seeing this go on in high schools and colleges, fraternities, the military, and even some workplaces? With us to discuss this issue is one of the top experts on the topic Dr. Susan Lipkins she's a psychologist and she's a pioneer in the area of hazing bullying and harassment she's the author of preventing hazing how parents teachers and coaches can stop the violence harassment and humiliation she writes and speaks on this issue Uh, she holds a PhD and also a postdoctoral certification in child and adolescent psychotherapy Dr. Lipkins thank you so much for joining us Thank you for having me. I'm sure you're looking at this situation uh, at Northwestern, and and I I looked at your website, which is really fascinating. And you have dealt with this issue over across the country and all levels, and you've written about it and spoken about it. Does it surprise you that it continues?
1: No, unfortunately, it does not surprise me.
0: So, what you know, how how long has hazing gone on? Like, what is the history of hazing when it comes to these kinds of, of, of issues?
1: The truth is that hazing may be part of human nature. I suspect that there was something like this that probably went on in tribes and, you know, across the world, you know, thousands of years ago. There's uh, indications that in ancient Greece, there were events happening that we would today call hazing. Um, The more modern hazing, I think, came over in the 1800s from uh, England, from Oxford to Harvard, Um, and at that time it was called fagging, and it was mostly uh, servitude, servants uh, doing pranks, um, you know, decorating a statue on the college campus or stealing something from a different uh, eating group or fraternity that eventually uh, developed. The sexualized hazing, I started looking at in the early 2000s and actually saw that things had been going on in the 1970s and 80s. And each decade, it just gets worse and worse and more intense. Um, So the question is, why do people haze? And the answer is, I think it is part of a tradition used in groups. Uh, in order to maintain the pecking order or the hierarchy and to discipline. That's my own personal definition. And I think that uh, it continues because it it works. And I also think that people want to be part of a group that's become even more important in this century. And they want to feel like they identify with a group, that they're part of the tribe, And and the group says, well, you have to prove that you're worthy to be part of the group. And in order to prove that, you need to uh, experience these traditions. And so,
0: again, like I'm thinking that if something like this happened to me as a freshman, I wouldn't want to turn around. I, I would think that I wouldn't want to turn around and then be the perpetrator because it hurt me. It was harmful. It was embarrassing. It was unnecessary. Why would I do something like that, having had it happen to me? Why doesn't that mentality take over?
1: Well, I think we should just go back one note. I don't know if you described this to your uh, listeners earlier. There's something I call the blueprint of hazing, which means you come in and you're hazed in order to be a member of the group. And then you become a bystander and watch as others get hazed. And eventually, when you're a senior member and you have the power, you feel like you have the right and the duty to haze others and that you're supposed to do this and pass on the tradition. So, why do people do it? I think most of the young people who are involved um, feel like, you know, I just have to do it. I, I have to do, pass on the tradition. I don't have a choice. The group pressure is too intense. A few members, I think, um, do have uh, a better or more stronger moral compass, even while they're involved in hazing. And they are in conflict. There's an internal conflict between what was done to them and repeating it. Um, I think most of them succumb to the group, to the stress of the group, to the pressure of the group. Um, I think a few actually, you know, don't, are, are so uncomfortable they might actually leave the group. But that's probably a very small percentage. It's
0: fascinating because if you were to ask me, and especially the student athlete age, you know, whatever twenty, twenty, twenty-two, I just see that generation as being more independent in their thinking. You know that they're they're, they're very conscious of of the what's right and wrong. You know, and, and you're saying it's not getting better; it's getting worse.
1: Well, I, I I would like you to imagine a door, and above it it says hazing. And all the people, smart people, not so smart people, rich people, poor people, all people of all different colors, races, religions, socioeconomic level, education, all of it. Right before they go through that, they drop their their judgment, their independent judgment and their moral, uh, their moral, internal moral values. It's like they drop their backpack on the outside, take off their shoes, and they walk through this doorway that says hazing. And now because of the code of silence it's as if nothing counts. Nobody's going to get in trouble. Everything will be anonymous. And because most cases it's been successful in the past, and if it hasn't been, nobody has told them about it, um, they feel like they won't get caught, they won't be punished, it doesn't matter, it won't count. And, And so it's sort of like a different kind of person. Many times, if not all the times that I've been involved in death cases with hazing, had the group... Called nine one one earlier could be one hour earlier, ten hours earlier. They all knew that the student was, uh, you know, in trouble and needed to be seen. They were more interested in cleaning up the evidence and trying to protect themselves than they were in calling, you know, nine one one. However, if we took the same exact situation and we put it out on the street, all those people would have called nine one one immediately. Right. And and so the difference is. The code of silence and the group pressure, and that that doorway, that threshold that says hazing. Life is different when you walk through that um, through that threshold, and everything that happens on one side of the door is different than what will happen on the other.
0: We're talking to Dr. Susan Lipkins. Uh, she's
1: an expert in
0: hazing. Uh, her um, her website is. Uh, could you give out your website again? Yeah, it's, it's called Inside. InsideHazing.com. I really highly recommend you take a look at it. There's some really interesting articles and information on there. She also is the author of Preventing Hazing, How Parents, Teachers, and Coaches Can Stop the Violence, Harassment, and Humiliation. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm going to talk a little bit about whether there's a difference between f- females and males when it comes to hazing. You're listening to WGN. We're talking about hazing with Dr. Susan Lipkins. And um, Dr. Lipkins, uh I think of hazing as this kind of masculine type of, of conduct, but it it, it the, the women do it too. Is that fair to say? Oh, oh, hi. Is that is that fair to say?
1: Yes, 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 absolutely. Okay. Uh, and is it and,
0: as common, or less common, or equally as common?
1: Well, let's start out with what we know about hazing. There is no uh, location that. Um, deep statistics about hazing. So just like we have a CDC that says, you know, there's, here's a virus, here's how many people get it. There is nothing like that for hazing. And most people who are hazed will deny that they were either hazed or that they hazed somebody else. Um, so what happens is we really don't have statistics on how many hazings happen every day, every season, and, and in every location. Therefore, we don't know how many hazings happened for males or females. It's my experience that um, in, I, I think, in the last four large cases I had, and what that means is, unfortunately, the student died. Three out of four of them were females, So, and they died by hazing. So it's not, it is, unfortunately... Uh, kind of behavior that that continues in both sororities and fraternities, in male athletic teams and female athletic teams. I'm quite sure it happens in the military for both sexes as well. Um, So the difference, as you mentioned, you were asking, um, I think in general some of the male uh, groups are more likely to use stronger, harsher, physical kinds of hazing techniques. And uh, both males and females use alcohol. My, I suspect that males actually drink more than females. Um, I think that the, what happens to girls in general, young women in general, when they're hazed, is it is sort of deeper because it's psychological. So, you know, when you circle all the fat on a woman uh, and you write fat and ugly and whore and a bunch of other bad words that doesn't go away. That kind of goes under their skin and in their psyche, and they carry that around, and they can carry that around their whole life. I think when you use those kinds of names with men, frequently that'll like bounce off of them more easily. Um, So the psychological effectiveness of hazing in women, I think, is stronger and deeper. And with men, um, they also have post-traumatic stress disorder because of hazing, but I think it typically affects the self-image of a a woman uh, more deeply and maybe more quickly than it might with a guy.
0: I have a texter from the 630 Area Code who said, Karen, hazing is a humiliating experience. I think it continues because those who have been hazed accept it and continue it because it makes them feel better about their hazing experience, a validation in a way.
1: Is that well that's my that, that's my theory. That's actually what I say. Is yeah. that I wonder I wonder if people who uh, have been hazed, when they haze somebody else, they are retrieving that unconscious part of themselves that they lost during the hazing. But there's no research on that to prove that. That's as far as I'm concerned, that's a theory. Um and it may or may not be true. I, I agree with the, the listener that um the reason hazing has become so sexualized is it is the most immediate way uh, to humiliate somebody and to make them feel like they have zero power. So I think that the sexualized hazings, as we see in northwestern and in other cases, um, have become more frequent frequent because of their uh, strength.
0: In your uh, on your website, insidehazing. dot com, I saw an astounding number of instances of sexual conduct in the hazing, which uh, apparently happened here at Northwestern. And there was um, kind of a, uh, a parodying of sex acts, a nudity, and things like that. But in some of the instances on in your website, you actually have sodomy with broomsticks and horrible, horrible things that are that are rape and crimes. Um, yeah, there was. All- why, why sexual? Why, why does hazing go into the sexual realm frequently?
1: Well, that's what I was saying. I think that it's sexualized because it's the most humiliating thing you can do, and therefore the group gains power immediately over the person who's being humiliated to that degree. Um, so the sodomy, you know, I would like your audience to realize that sodomy is common in um, male athletic teams, in high school across the country. And I have been, I got involved because of one in 2003 in Long Island, New York. And as you said, um, the freshmen were sodomized with broomsticks and pine cones and golf balls covered in icy hot. And, you know, that is not so uncommon. That's been going on and it just gets worse. And it is sexual assault and it is rape and it is illegal and it is also a common part of hazing and now you know i think in some way the kids have started to accept the fact that their private parts will be attacked or touched or involved in you know, as they become part of a, a sports team uh, in high school it's just as-
0: horribly disturbing and and obviously you don't know the inside and outside of the northwestern case but the the coach has said and the investigative report said there's no credible evidence that the coach knew about it uh we don't know exactly if that's true one way or the other but in your experience dr lipkins is it is it conceivable that he didn't know about it is that believable
1: Mm, i think i might reword that sentence but basically in my experience the coaches always knew and it's not just the coach, we should realize it's the whole coaching team because they're assistant coaches and they're athletic trainers. Um, it's they're even the guys who clean up the locker room, you know, there's evidence all over the place. And often the colleges themselves know because the kids are coming to into class, you know, um, they're Sometimes they're not allowed to shower uh, they they're not allowed to sleep. Um, you know they're all different indications the kids gPA usually go down when hazing is occurring. Um, so you know I think that the, a wider group of people actually do know what's going on in this specific case from what I have read it, it there seems to be that the coach did in fact um, identify which which freshmen or newbies needed to be disciplined and he would give a a particular clap over their heads, and there was a whiteboard with the names and the kinds of hazing that those kids were going to have to endure. So I think there was a, a dotted line between the coach and the victims, and, I, and I, I've been, you know, I've tried to talk to coaches and, and you know, uh, athletic teams. I had a, a captain come up to me and say, look, you know, the coach is in his office. I'm running the practice. The only way you can discipline these guys is to haze them. And you know that made me realize that you know these captains are given tremendous amount of power they're not given training on how to manage a team for that matter i don't know if coaches are either or the psychology of young adults and their and their brain development um, and the you know where is the coach where is the coaching team you know staff what who has the power who has the responsibility and i I guess from my point of view you might question I, I think that the um, Fitzgerald was earning something like $5.5 million a year. Right. And, you know, you would wonder, Is that make him responsible for what goes on in his team? It's just so inconceivable
0: to me that a coach at that level, knowing that this is harming, they're precious uh, athletes, you know. That they could be killed. They could be so humiliated or depressed or harmed in some way, or or kicked off the team. You name it. That that they would put an end to it and 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 ferret it out and put a stop to it. If this it doesn't, none of this makes sense. It it's like it goes against your logic.
1: Not exactly a rational thing, but if you look at it, let's say that this has been going on for twenty years and he has had a successful winning career for twenty years, then he would say, Why would I change it? Yeah. And he himself was probably hazed and probably hazed others because I think most athletes have experienced this in some form. Um, and if you're gonna be that integrated into the whole system, this is how they do it. That's exact I think this is how they would think. So um You know, in every hierarchy, I mean, in any group that has that kind of hierarchy and tradition, people can question it and say, you know, this doesn't make sense, this isn't good, but this is how it's done, so we're going to keep on doing it. And who's going to go up against that authority figure and say no? Uh, exactly. Dr. Susan Lipkins, thank you
0: so much for joining me. It's, it, I, thought, I thought you were going to clarify some things and bring some fresh air, but it's now now I, I feel worse about this topic than, than ever. But, but, but at least you explained it, and, and maybe we can do something about it in the future. Dr. Susan Lipkins, um, she's the author of Preventing Hazing, How Parents, Teachers, and Coaches Can Stop Violence, Harassment, and Humiliation. And check out her website, InsideHazing.com. Thank you so much. You're listening to WGN.